Welcome to the Quantum Leopard podcast. Uh, Quantum Leopard is a multi-award winning, pay what you like, no punching down, no picking on the audience, gender balance booking, central London Saturday night of lovely comedy, and this is its podcast. Every episode will have a recording of a real live set from one of our nights and an interview with the comedy brain behind it. Uh, we have uh, videos of full shows up on patreon.com forward slash Quantum Leopard, and that's going to have loads of sets that aren't in the podcast as well. Uh, we only charge when new live show videos come out. I'm your host and MC, James Ross, and this is Quantum Leopard. This episode, we have the wonderful uh, Royal Coley, and this set was recorded on the 19th of November 2022 by Anna Red Oja at Leakey's, uh, and the interview took place on the 9th of May 2023. Uh, Raw's an enormously versatile and hardworking comic who can smash mainstream and alternative rooms up and down the country. Uh, content warnings on this set for experience of racism, knife crime, imperialism, uh, and whatever a phobia of people from Leeds is called. Uh, in my book, I would call that legitimate. Uh, enjoy! London, how are you? Excellent. My name is Raoul. Uh, that may be confusing at first glance because I am English. I have Indian heritage. And for no apparent reason whatsoever, I have a Mexican's name. It's an inclusive night. I have to deal with that. It's a changing world. I'm a Mexican Indian. I don't live here in London. I actually live in Edinburgh. Give me a cheer. If we've got any Scots in that... You didn't know what I was going to say. Uh, that, that was too quick. I could have gone on a full Kanye right there. And you were like, woo! Give me a cheer if we've got any Scots in the house. Couple, excellent work. Fantastic. I live in Edinburgh. It's very lovely there. It's lovely there. Because they like the English. They don't mind my accent. When you go there, you've got Edinburgh people hear your accent. They'll be like, oh, yeah, from England. Oh, that's wonderful. What about from Newcastle? That's amazing. I've got family just up the road in Berwick. But you head 45 minutes north of Edinburgh to a small city called Glasgow. Bit less friendly. <laughs> Bit less friendly. from England. That's a nice more. Oh, you're from England! <laughs> I hope you fucking die! <laughs> And that is why I love Glasgow. Because Glasgow is now the only place I have been in the world where I have been racially abused for the colour of my skin not mentioned once. It's a new one for me, being told to fuck off back to England. By a Muslim woman in a full niqab, no less. live in London. Unfortunately, the pandemic sent me up north where there's a little bit cheaper rent. I used to live uh, here. No, not here. Like, I didn't like, sleep where Vigo was climbing. Uh, 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 I lived in London. Uh, not central. I lived in north London. I lived in a place called Wood Green. Because I... Oh, I've got a few Wood Greeners in the house. Also fans of knife crime. Excellent work. Don't get me wrong. I loved Wood Green. I love the people. I love the culture. I love the vibe. But I would be frankly lying if I said it wasn't dangerous. You would see kids fighting each other on the daily. When the NHS clap started in the middle of the pandemic, I was asleep at the time. I genuinely thought somebody brought a machine gun to the beef. Jumped <laughs> straight under bed. But, but, but I was in Wigan not too long ago. Uh, 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 
of you guys know racists, but racists that they're smarter than they let on. Like racists, <laughs> what they will do. I met this racist in a bar, and what they'll do is racist is like they'll befriend somebody who is like not of of the particular group they hate, and then they can say like, oh, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't hate Muslims. I've got a brown friend, and it's like I'm Hindu, bro. Like this does not help your case, bro. Look at Lester right now. This is not a good thing. But that's what they do. And, and this guy came up to me in Wigan, and he started talking about knife crime, right? And he started like sort of being very racist about it, quite open. He was like, oh, the thing is, mate, Raul, it's quite clearly, quite clearly a black crime, isn't it? Like, this is something that hasn't happened in Europe before we sort of had predominantly black neighbourhoods. And I, I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, we have always had gangs of lads running around fighting each other. Like, we had the football hooligans in the 80s and 90s, we had the mods and rockers in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And he was like, no, no, but we never had it with, with knives, Raul. We never had it where gangs of lads were running around, stabbing each other over who gets to control a particular piece of postcode until we had black neighbourhoods. And I was like, the entirety of European history <laughs> is gangs of lads running round stabbing each other over who gets to control a particular piece of postcode. The Romans, the Angles, the Saxons, the Vikings. And he, he tried to like get this moral relativism. He was like, oh, but that was about resources, Raoul. It's very, very different. You know, that's the way the world's always been. These guys will just stab somebody because somebody has run off with their missus. That's why they'll do it. I was like, mate, I don't know if you have heard of a city called Troy. <laughs> Sorry, that's strictly speaking incorrect. It's a town called Troy. They don't have cathedrals in ancient Greece. <laughs> I was like, that whole thing fucking started because Agamemnon was just there one day. My man, he was just like, Paris did what with my girl? <laughs> Oi, Achilles. <laughs> yeah, call all the man then, bro. <laughs> Get your boy Odysseus. And who's that, that weirdo joiner you hang around with? Epeus, yeah. Tell him to bring that big fucking wooden horse. <laughs> I think my point being here, ladies, gentlemen, and non-binary friends, is that the Odyssey was the original drill song. <laughs> and Homer was the original Storm. See, that is my point. It's an odd time living in the 21st century. People are worried about things that I thought as a world we had settled. There's a lot of big discussions now around gender, and particularly transgendered people. Now, me as a northern, cisgendered, heterosexual man, you might think this is something that at first I might have been a little bit ignorant of, but I have this wild card to play, which is my Indian Hindu heritage, right? Like, I have never, ever, ever, ever been ignorant of trans people because in India they have existed for thousands of years. There is historical evidence that proves they have existed for 3,000 years. We had trans people because you had fucking Jesus. That's where <laughs> All right. Genuinely, I met a trans person before. I met someone from Leeds. <laughs> Six years old, and all the trans friends I have made, I would trust implicitly with my life. But fuck people from Leeds. Uh, <laughs> I think the fear and the ignorance centers around sort of the, the fact that it is something appearly, appears, appears new to Westerners, do you know what I mean? Uh, and in India, like, trans people come with a lot of sort of blessings. Basically, we believe that they were sent by Krishna thousands of years ago to confer blessings upon people. We believe they have special powers, or as you here in the West believe they were spawned in 2008 at a My Chemical Romance concert. That <laughs> is primarily <laughs> the difference. 
And I think the great irony of Indians believing that trans people have like special magic powers is that while J.K. Rowling believes that trans women aren't real women, all of India thought every motherfucker in Harry Potter was trans. Every fucking one. Time to be alive, a lot of once-in-a-lifetime events. We lost the Queen. How do we feel about that, Quantum? <laughs> couple of woos, couple of more reserved responses. I feel like there's something that happens in this country with the monarchy, and it's from both sides, from abolitionists and monarchists, where I feel like we sometimes strip them of their humanity. There still was a 96-year-old woman who died at the end of the day. She still got family, and I still think, regardless of the institution she represents, that is unfortunate. And that's where I thought the genuine monarchists were quite disgusting in the aftermath of the Queen's death, because the her body wasn't even cold. And Sky News were just tracking her dead body like it was a Domino's. <laughs> Kay Burley was just there on Sky News like, well, she's just left Edinburgh. It'll be six hours till she's in the oven. What the fuck? <laughs> Don't get me started on the cost of living crisis here. I standards are falling so quickly it is so hard to keep up in may i saw a very interesting story because this is like a very we should be proud of certain things right this is a progressive multicultural bin fire our country right it's a very you know what i mean we've got a female prime minister brown prime minister black chancellor that was just last week like it's a progressive bin fire but standards are falling horrifically quickly like Nothing works. In May, I saw a story about these Liverpool fans. They were flying out from Gatwick for the Champions League final. Their flight was cancelled. There was no way from any airport, any flight, they would get there on time. So, what these Liverpool fans did was they did what every single refugee does. They went to Aldi. They went to the Random Isle. They got a dinghy. And they sailed the other way across the channel. Two questions we need to ask ourselves here, London, is number one, how far have living standards fallen in this country when Scousers are doing the exact same thing refugees do just to watch a football match? And the second question we need to ask ourselves is how terrifying and confusing must that have been for the Syrians and Eritreans coming the other way? Time to be alive. I, I leave you, I leave you on, on this last thought on the current government we've got. The one that is in power now, not last week. Like uh, Liz, Liz Truss is interesting. She was all right, wasn't she? But like she just. I personally liked Liz Truss because I like I like politicians. Bear with me. I like I like Liz Truss. I like Jacob Rees-Mogg. I like Jeremy Corbyn because they do what they say on the tin. I know full well if I vote for them when they get elected, they are going to do what they say they're going to do. They're not going to just change their mind and lie to you. Do you know what I mean? Liz Truss said she was going to suicide bomb the economy. That's exactly what she fucking did. That's why I don't trust Rishi. Because at first, I loved Rishi. Hindu, Indian man, like me. I was like, oh, heavens, yes. Then I seen what he was about. I was like, oh, hell no. Sorry. Oh, infinite lifetimes of reincarnation, no. This is the man who was the architect of the free school meals policy, right? Where he decided the poorest children in our society don't need food. We can't afford that. That's ridiculous. Just not even on a moral level. Economically, that makes absolutely no sense. But the thing is that like, annoyed me the most was he had to backtrack on this policy because McDonald's 
and Marcus Rashford came together and said, fuck you, Rishi, if you won't feed kids, we will. This is apolitical, that's completely immoral, you're disgusting. And do you know how bad you have fucked up? <laughs> when millionaire footballers and McDonald's our billionaire corporate overlords, the global symbol of capitalism, come together to start a communist revolution. I'll leave you on this last final thought. That's why you can't trust Rishi, because every day he changes mind. If you remember correctly, at the start of his leadership campaign, he came out with this slick video, didn't he? And he's like, this is my mother. She arrived in 1972. This is her story. And then, by day two of the campaign, he realised that wasn't quite flushing or working with Tory party members, so he completely switched track, and on day two he was like, and if she arrived today, I'll kick the bitch out! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, and not my new friends, I have been Raoul Gurley. Thank you very much, and enjoy the rest of the Royal Coley. Uh, thank you for an amazing set, Royal. That was uh, so much fun to listen to there. It was uh, loads of fun to listen to as well when I was going through and um, like coming up with questions and stuff like that afterwards as well. That was um, really, really loads of fun. So, um, yeah, how, uh, how are you doing? How are you now? I'm good, mate. I can't complain. Uh, for the most part, things are very much on the up. Trying to balance too much, um, you know, bits of uh, what I would say is, is like podcasting, um, starting to upload clips and stuff while also still trying yeah. to be a road comic um luckily i've got my agent now so that's my diary taken care of but it seems like they've almost put more on my plate in terms of if you want to build your profile you've got to be doing all that thing you've been avoiding for the past 10 years um uh, so i'm just dealing with a lot but it, it's it's all good do you know what i mean i'm yeah, stressed yeah, yeah, yeah. but i'm not depressed and i think that's probably a good place to be yeah you're the kind of busy where it's like that's a nice problem to have Yes, yes, you'd rather be here than where I was um, in the pandemic. But then, do you know what I thought? I think that applies to most of us. <laughs> yes, yeah, but also I think, you know what, I want somewhere in between, just a bit of balance, but my work-life balance is yeah. absolutely shocking. But otherwise, I'm good. How are you, James? Good. Oh, well, thank you for asking. I, I always feel that comedians that ask me that back are a bit like um, the kids who uh, leave something out for Father Christmas. Like, what would Father Christmas like for Christmas? You know what I mean? Yeah, um, the ones who yeah. don't are the ones who um, don't offer, you know, the man doing uh, work in your house a cup of tea. Yeah, exactly. You should always do that. Always do that. It will, it will, it, like, it might not result in a discount, but it won't result in you being overcharged. In terms of this gig, like, how are you feeling going into Quantum Leopard? How, you, how did you find the audience? I was genuinely, uh, in terms of how I was feeling going into it, I was genuinely a little bit worried, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's to do with my personal journey, both through comedy and just life. Uh, I went to Sheffield University. It's a very left-wing university, I think. Amongst the Russell groups, the type of uh, clientele it attracts are quite left-wing. The people I was surrounded by are very left-wing. I, I started comedy there in the comedy society, so those people were incredibly far left-wing. Um, but as I got a bit older and as I got a bit deeper into comedy, um, I kind of got a bit frustrated with what a lot of the modern left sort of had become. I kind of couldn't help but shake this idea that, um, to some degree, people like myself uh, had sort of caused... Brexit. And I think I touched on this a little bit in the set that people like myself had sort of caused Brexit and Trump. Not entirely, but had we have to sort of like look at ourselves and sort of ask 
what what have we done that have maybe sort of pushed a lot of, because it is a numbers game is going oh. what have we done globally that has pushed so many people into the arms of brexiteers donald trump jeb bolsonaro the the brothers of italy victor orban um andre duda uh, narendra modi like there is a number and this is something that i've had to sort of have, have a deep sort of look at myself with and so from there i kind of well, I was trying to make left-wing points, but not as on the nose. I wasn't trying to yeah, write yeah, yeah. left-wing comedy for left-wing people. I was trying to, like, <laughs> Sneaky G had this stuff into club yeah. sets. I was trying to yeah. appeal to what I felt were, were sort of more middle-of-the-road swing voters. And yeah. so I wasn't 100% sure if my material was going to, because of the way I was phrasing it and because of the way I was deliberately delivering it to not be to an audience like Blizzard mm. or like Quantum Leopard, I, I wasn't 100% sure if it would sort of like land with your particular audience. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, like one of the things I think you're particularly good at is like telling your material to your audience. Like I've seen you do really well with, uh, you know, your hour to a pretty like mainstream room. Like, you know, you're clearly, uh, you know, very accomplished club like circuit comic. Like I've seen you smash mainstream club sets, but you also do like you did really, really well at Quantum Leopard. And, you know, I also know do you really, really well uh, at Blizzard. Well, I mean. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to do a quick plug for people who don't know what Blizzard is. So it's sort of like a Manchester's um, kind of like early week, uh, younger and gayer version of Quantum Leopard, basically. So do check it out if you're in the area. But like, I mean, I'm just wondering with that. I mean, like, I mean, how do you, how do you, do you, how deliberately do you pick specific bits for a specific room? Like, do you, do you go in with a specific plan in mind, or do you just kind of like feel out the room when you get there? It's a bit of both. It's a bit of both. Uh, like, it's it's half and half. Comedy is live. You adapt to it being live. But I've got, I've travelled around so much, and I've been a road comic i've not really been a theater comic i'm trying yeah. to build that now and that's why i'm sort of a bit you know just buried under uh all of this because i'm trying to do all this stuff online and all this stuff that i've never previously done but it's like adding a whole new job to your your, yeah, your already yeah. quite busy schedule but i've always been a road comic so what that's meant is a sort of live and die by the room's reaction that's going to de decide on whether i'm getting that extra 200 300 400 quid for the weekend next year yeah. they're going to bring me back um and my the geography of where I go, like I'm widely known as like one of the hardest working comics in stand up. Uh, and I yeah. think that's just people mistaking the fact that I'm not a very smart working comic. I go everywhere <laughs> and anywhere. So I am like um, in Amsterdam, I'm in Barcelona, I'm in Poland, I'm in India. These are all paid gigs. But then also yeah. on regular weekends, I'm in Manchester, I'm in Liverpool, I'm in Wigan, I'm in London. Uh, I was just in Torrington and uh, Exeter. Last weekend, I could be as far north as Stonehaven and Aberdeen. But when you're playing to all these different rooms, these different peoples, and you're trying to find two things, something that is original, that is yeah. still like, I don't want to be hack. And I have done hack jokes, and sometimes you have to, because I always see comedy as entertainment first, art second. Yeah. Yeah, um, in the yeah. sense that if you're not making them laugh, you're not doing your job. Um, that is the first job. Yeah, that absolutely. is where, you know, the ones who really go stratospheric and tend to win awards and, and, and really kind of, they tend to be artists from the very get-go. They have something mm. within them that I do not, which is where they can go on and die and come off stage and not really let it bug them. <laughs> whereas that shit really eats up at me at home. So, like, my stuff is primarily left. And even if I went and did a comedy Unleashed or went on GB News or went to any sort of writer-leaning night or where there were predominantly Tories in the audience. And I'm sure I have done. You can't have gigged in as many places as I have, which has had a Tory government for almost two decades. Um, and not... No, well, just one one decade. Yeah, one decade, about 12, 13 years. 
Um, but that cannot, like, some of those rooms would have been predominantly Tory. Yeah. And I'm sure they were. Um, and I've still managed to crack them with sort of my left-wing sort of take on things. Um, like, I, I've always tried to do that. I've always tried to stay true to myself while sort of adjusting for who they are. I might yeah. word things in a slightly different way that's a bit sneaky. So I'll give you a good example. Um, uh -huh. If you talk about the government being a multicultural fascist binfire, I think I said those exact words in the Quantum Leopard set. And in that set, when I'm gigging in what I think is a bit more of a left-wing room, I'll say, um, and the thing, you know, say what you like about fascists, because that's just a funny idea anyway. Say what you like <laughs> about Adolf Hitler, right? But he was scary at the very least, defending Adolf Hitler's, you know, intimidation tactics or whatever. But if I feel like it's a slightly more right-wing room, I, or if it's a bit more of a mainstream room, and again, my job is to entertain and not to offend, I'll say... I think people are a bit over the top when they call them fascists because fascists are scary. When mm, I see Adolf Hitler mm. giving a speech, I find him scary. When I see Richard Sunak giving a speech, I just think Indian Mr. Bean. It's the same joke, but mm. that slight wording is just done, I think, from a place of cowardice, really. You know what I mean? It's just I'm not willing to give my full opinion because I have a job to do that's make them laugh. And if somebody just hears me immediately calling the government fascist and they maybe think that's a bit strong or they're offended by that, it just can automatically, if that starts to happen regularly, as a club comic, you don't want to bring that vibe to the club. You just want things to be funny. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like, you know, you do need to keep getting rebooked so that you can eat, right? Like, that's a that's a pretty, <laughs> a pretty robust form of censorship that I think a lot of the sort of quote-unquote free speech comics are less keen on exploring or defending. So with your bit, I, so a bit that I really enjoyed in this was your bit about um, gangs of lads controlling a particular postcode. I think that's just an absolutely inspired uh, analogy. And like I really like this bit because it provides like, a really great framing device for a modern issue with the kind of insight that's really good because it just it feels obvious and recognisable like as soon as you said it. You've got a lovely bit of wordplay with the town of Troy, which um, I particularly enjoy because I'm a massive nerd. Um, and then you've got a really nice bit, which is like the um, the one song to the tune of another kind of segment with the, the, sort of the Trojan War in the style of uh, urban London youth. And, like, and this is a really well-crafted bit that ties together so many elements like you know is this is this a bit that you wrote all in one go like how did it develop what did the initial idea look like and what bits got added along the way are, are there any bits that you cut out of that no um it's still a bit i need a re-recording it perfect because i think i stupidly called the iliad the odysseus which is uh, the you know no, I, I got i <laughs> slightly got that wrong and i want to say the iliad because when i put it online i want to look like i'm smarter than i am um, yeah, yeah. but i just lost the the term in my head um have that... you tried wearing glasses? <laughs> that might be an idea, but um, I can't Photoshop glasses onto me. On that the is video, true. Yeah, uh, yeah. Post hoc, uh, that would just look a bit guess who, wouldn't it? But um, <laughs> no, I think I think with that bit, I really like that bit. It's one of these. There are certain bits that I'm very, very happy with, and that was one bit that, as soon as I thought of it, I was like, "That's amazing." Um, just because, like, I think. Again, coming back to and this is again sort of looking back at the left, like coming back, I was talking about the internet and how we've all become the tabloids. The internet sort of forces you like to live in this particular moment. I don't think it's always a good thing. We do need to sort of have to. I'm always with my stand up trying to look at the bigger picture. Yeah. So I'm always trying to say, okay, well, like, people just have this particular opinion, but actually it's a lot deeper than that. And, you know, when you've got 7 billion people and an infinite 
number of opinions where like everyone, me and you would just define a word as simple as and or the slightly differently. There's something bigger here that connects all humans, right? So people on the right and in certain papers, and it was the same people were like, it's to people on the right, but they will say, they will say like, oh, you know, this is like a crime that's only started happening in like ethnic minority areas like Brixton and um, sort of inner city Birmingham, North London, Edmonton, Wood Green. And it does happen predominantly there. And, and the actual fact of the matter, if you take the humor out of it, is because those are the places where there's not enough economic growth. There's not enough investment. A lot of their, mm-hmm. these kids' parents are working. They're like one single parent households. They're working um late like jobs that are minimum wage that require them to be there from like six in the morning till midnight just to keep a roof over their head and then these kids are going out and seeing gangs operate and actually make loads of money and i actually think it's a uh, i think it's some of thatcher's chickens coming home to roost but once upon a time um hyper individualism deindustrialization values and community that doesn't matter it's cash 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 yeah. baby and these, these lads have absolutely perfectly encapsulated what thatcher's ideals were in my personal opinion um but before them it was and i think i mentioned this like before them it was like glasgow had a really bad issue of it and if you look at how glasgow took it these were white working class boys uh, and to some degree, mm. uh, Asian working class boys as well later on. But if you looked at how Glasgow took it, they just sort of looked at it as a social health problem. And yeah. they brought all the kids who might be in gangs and might end up stabbing each other and sort of like brought in people who lost uh, victims to knife crime and had them have one-to-ones with the kids and sort of explain how like, you know, this isn't really the way forward. And people who had got involved in it would end up in jail saying like, you know, it's it's not going to lead anywhere. This isn't how you, you change your life. And these are kids we forget. They process the world and they socialize the world in such a far simpler way than we do. They don't really have the breadth to sort of break it down like we do uh, as grown adults. But then as well, we've always had these issues and every time the paper wants to get that headline, it wants to make you feel scared. Everything sort of needs to feel a bit like an alien invasion or like the pandemic. Yeah. For all of the issues with the pandemic, uh, I'm sure people who worked in papers were sat at home going, Oh, I absolutely hate this. But also the people running the papers are like, money, once in a lifetime event. Do you know what I mean? Because once in a lifetime scary events, that's what sells papers. And so people say on the right, oh, it's 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 a black crowd. Before that, they said, oh, where have these football hooligans come from? Before that, they were like, oh, where have these... Um, where have these these uh, mods and rockers come from? They're kicking yeah, the yeah, shit yeah, out of yeah. each other on the beach. And then the left, what they'll say is they'll probably say what I said before is there is this economic issue. Now, the reason I don't talk about the economic issue is just because it's not funny. It's not funny yeah. talking about how they closed all the sure start centers the minute yeah, and yeah. The, like the minute knife crime really got to a big peak. It was like when the Tories cut the sure start centers and just as they got into power, that would be great if I was studying a political master's. I've, I've pointed some in there yeah. I could write my dissertation on, but I'm not sure exactly how I can make that funny. But what I it thought is, was... It is very difficult to make structural factors amusing. Like, you can't you can't do that as a punchline. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. This, for me, is a spiritual fact, this joke. Um, maybe spiritual's the wrong word. But again, I'm coming back to this idea that, like, all humans, in my personal opinion, are sort of directed by the same things. It's just the circumstance that sort of changes them. And if you look mm. at knife crime, if you look at man's capability for violence... It's historic. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, like the the sort of the long term trend across human history Sorry. is definitely for. <laughs> That's fine. Um, yeah, it's interesting because like the long term trend is definitely for 
violence to decrease over societies over time. Like that is the general trend. Absolutely. Um, and so, and so it's very much um, in the interest of those who remain powerful to maintain this artificial sense of crisis, like a, a, a confected uh, artificial moral panic. Uh, as a way of cohering greater loyalty behind the project of continuing to you know, develop an oppressive state apparatus that can support continued value extraction, particularly in societies that are in decline, in economies that are in decline, relatively speaking, because you've got diminishing returns uh, of profit uh, to investment. And so you need to maintain those relations of power. And the way that you do that and maintain some sort of democratic legitimacy for that is by through these sorts of scare tactics. So I think I think you're absolutely right on that. Um, yes, I I'd like to move on because I really want to talk about your um, trans bit as well. So um, so with the trans bit, so I, I, firstly, I think we can absolutely agree, fuck people from Leeds, fuck the city of Leeds, <laughs> fuck everything associated with Leeds, directly or indirectly. It's the wrong side of the Pennines. Uh, it can fuck off. Fuck the um, white so, <laughs> so have you ever done that bit in Leeds? No, not yet. Not yet. No. <laughs> um, I'm sure I'd probably change it. I'd probably change it at Sheffield or... Yeah, you yeah. know, it's, it's coming back to what I said in my earlier question. Um, you know, you play at your audience, um, and and that's just as a club comic. That's not gonna. That's yeah. not gonna. That's not gonna ride right, is it? Uh, I don't know why <laughs> I say Leeds because that is true. This is one hundred percent true. I, it was south of like I'd probably say as far south as maybe Middlesbrough. I probably met one or two people, but six years old, walking down the streets of India with me dad. We met a hijra. I was a little yeah. bit confused. And my dad, who's, who's probably not, you know, he's not the type of person to be coming to Quantum Leopard. <laughs> Blizzard, he's an old yeah. Indian bloke who's worked all his life. He's quite a tough man. He just broke it down very simply. And my mom, she's a Daily Mail reader. She's got some views that are very antithetical to mine. But even she's like, oh, these, these, these trans people are just born in the wrong body. And that's sort of because they have that history there. And yeah, they've yeah, sort yeah. of grown up with them. They know about them. It's nothing new. And for me, trans people genuinely weren't anything new. The sort of debate yeah. in the West about them and perhaps Western but white trans people, yeah, I suppose they're new to me. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> white trans, okay, that was that was maybe something that like was something I seen for the first time, but but I genuinely was six years old. I remember that very vividly. Um yeah. And so I feel like, you know, it's, it's always, I'm always, you know, you don't want to delve into issues like as a bloke, you don't want to delve into uh, women's issues or, or, or trans issues or even black issues. Like I said, knife crime, people say knife crime is a black crime. And you only want to delve in if you really, I, th I think I nailed, although it's not personal, I think I've nailed it with a historical perspective on the knife crime bit. Yeah, with yeah. this trans bit, uh, I'm not sure I've nailed it because a lot of what I'm saying is sort of slightly. I'm I'm omitting particular facts. Um, I try to write a joke. I would probably do very well, um, at your night and did really well at Blizzard when I did it. But it, I, I don't think it would really. I'm trying to find a way, and I've been sort of crafting it and crafting it. And I've never really quite got it right for the clubs and for an audience again, or perhaps not as exposed to this as. Well, I want to talk about the fact that like the media again, it's just such a weird why like. You know what I mean? Like, because in India, and this is what I mean by I'm omitting certain facts, because in India, like, they're not trep very well, our hijras. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they yeah, might yeah. have been once upon a time, the historical record tends to suggest they were, and they were, they genuinely were seen as, like, it is in the Bible that they were, it is in the Mahabharata that they were sort of given gifts by Krishna, who's the number one of the a million gods we have in the Hindu faith. <laughs> um, but he yeah. is top dog. Um, but nonetheless, 
he did give them special powers for their faith to him uh, and give them the ability to confer blessings. That seems to be true. And over time, somehow that, that, that ability to confer blessings has just been able to be confer curses, right? And mm. if you taught uh, some people, and again, it's hard to dissect history when you don't have the facts and it's just somebody's word. But the facts seem to suggest, or at least the writing seems to suggest, the historical facts seem to suggest, but I can't say this as fact. It seems to suggest that the Victorians came along with their ideals and went, yeah. we're absolutely not dealing with this. <laughs> Fucking, yeah. that is two genders. Fuck off the rest of years. And stop yeah, them yeah. performing at wedding. Made, made it illegal for them to perform at weddings, which is where they mm -hmm. get most of their money. They were sort of like, almost like stand-up comics like performers like me. They'd perform private parties at weddings, confer blessings on the married couple, get their paycheck, and they live a pretty good life, uh, if, if that is to be believed. I am omitting certain bits of information there, but I still think I can tell that story because it is personal and it's based yeah. on truth. And that truth is that I met a trans person. I was confused, but I wasn't shocked. It was explained in a sympathetic way by my old parents who are yeah. boomers. And that was that. It was put to bed and nobody gave yeah. a shit. I'm trying to work this bit about how, like, you know, in India, they are treated very badly. In Pakistan, they're treated very badly. In Latin America, they're treated very badly. In a lot of working class communities, they face... Like, you know, I, I list lots of very brutal statistics about assaults, murders, um, mm -hmm. genuine, like, I would say, attempts at terrorism on trans communities around the world. Yeah, uh, yeah. But all you hear in the papers is, like, one of them in Oklahoma wants to do a 500-meter breaststroke. Yeah. And it's one of them. It worked well at Blizzard, but I just I can't find the way of sort of getting at it um, that has made it appeal to a less left-wing inclined audience just yet. Yeah, yeah. An, an audience that is not already bound to be sympathetic. Yeah. Yes, There's exactly. a lot of... Uh, yeah. There's a lot of really interesting stuff from what you're saying there. Like, um, I mean, so I'm the parent of a six-year-old and uh, explaining stuff to him uh, about quite complex issues uh, is actually surprisingly simple. When people say, oh, well, you know, how do you explain, you know, transness or homosexuality? And, like, how do, how do you explain that to a child? I'm like, actually, that is surprisingly easy, right? Like, what's hard to explain to a child is something like homelessness. Like, why is that a thing? Like, that is a much harder conversation to have with the child. <laughs> So the bit about uh, Liverpool fans in the dinghy crossing the channel. So I think this confirms <laughs> a bit of a, a motif of the set. So to me, there's like a like a running theme of here is an assumption that you might make about the the racial other, and then here is something that contradicts that. And to me, that that feels within this set like a conscious choice because you've got that lesson with the Glasgow bit, you've got that lesson with the Troy bit, you've got that with the trans material. Like you're very much about. I think about upending expectations. Like, um, I think you've touched on this a bit before, but like, is this something you develop consciously when you're writing or is it something that grows like out of the instinct to subvert expectation? That's so sort of a fairly, two, fairly traditional part of comedy and two comedic Two things very quickly. You've just sort of answered mm. part of your own question. Now. I was going to say part one. <laughs> comedy is subversion. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah, yeah. whether you're talking about the big topics or what are the, you know, the traditional joke, why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side? Because you've subverted exactly. the actual idea that it's a joke. You've just told yeah. a fact. And that in yeah. itself is like alternate comedy at its finest. But that is comedy, yeah. right? You are mm -hmm. subverting. And I suppose that's where it comes back to this club element and tailoring things to an audience is you're subverting a particular human's experience and you have to know who that human being is to understand how to subvert them. Now, with your audience, um, yes, I'm subverting a lot of like... But things they would agree with, essentially, my common theme for comedy, and if there is any artistic element whatsoever, it comes down to the fact that I think we're all human. I am trying to tap at a common humanity, whatever that joke is. Knife crime isn't solely the preserve of black people. 
being a refugee isn't solely, as we live in the Ukraine war, the preserve of um, ethnic minorities, right? For your audience, it's a joke, but if you actually look at um, my special on YouTube, the one that got nominated uh, at the Leicester Comedy Festival, it's probably my favourite solo show that I've ever done. All My Heroes Are Dead In Jail or Touched Up Your Nan. I sort of try and point the fact that Brexit voters and Trump voters are human too, and they were sort of like ignored over the past 10 years. Like they, they were sort of told they were lazy by the centre, right? And um, racist by the centre-left. And then they eventually, because the centre-left were ignoring the fact that actually if they went a little bit further left economically, they might have pulled these voters back in. And what the centre-right realised to my, our children, I would say, is that if they go a bit further right, they could actually pull these people in. And I think the left missed a big opportunity there. But what I did say was two things about them. As I said, uh, as I said before, the, the right call them lazy, the left call them racist. But they're genuinely people whose living standards are going down. They can't fathom it. And they're not allowed to speak about it. And that really makes you feel like all humans want is to be heard. And that makes them mm. feel very much lost. And that made them in many countries to a wrecking ball in their system just to get listened to. But the other thing I said was we seem to understand on the left that if you call young black boys criminals all their life, it might be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Some of them might grow up to be criminals. If you call young Muslim boys terrorists all their life, some of them might grow up to be terrorists. But we didn't seem to realize that if you call young white people racist all their lives, some of them might turn out to be racist. Mm, mm, and it's mm. about these preconceptions and about removing. That's what nothing gets on my nerves more. Nothing annoys me more than removing someone's humanity. Um, and I think, unfortunately, mm -hmm. we're living in a world where you, that that sort of, that's how you build your brand. <laughs> um, like the Rishi Sunak. So I think this bit is a, a very neat little bit about like the limits of a politics of representation. And I think that's something that yeah, you're quite, like particularly well-placed to say. Like, do you find that you're expected to have certain attitudes or cover certain topics because of because of who you are? And like, does that vary from room to room? Did you feel there was stuff you had to cover specifically for this room? Where I say like, you know, bring back old white men. Like I blame myself um, because I wanted more representation in politics. I wanted a, um, I wanted a, uh, <laughs> I wanted to see women in the government. I wanted to see black people in the government. I wanted to see uh, Indians in the government. Um, oh, and I got what I wanted. Yeah, monkey's poor finger. Yeah, yeah curls, I, I got, right? I got, yeah. I got a, I got a, uh, I got a female prime minister. I got an Indian prime minister. I got a black chancellor exchequer, and that was just in one week. Yeah, bring back the old white <laughs> men. But I never actually wanted that. I never actually. I always sort of quite firsthand saw the issues. I didn't think it'd be as bad as it was, but I think it's been pointed out that ethnic minorities prime ministers can do far worse than white prime yeah. ministers because they can get away with it because they've got the license to do it yeah i mean like arguably don't know yeah. how to call them racist <laughs> yeah 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 this is the thing so i mean this is this is i mean this is quite a, in the context of this specific conservative government this is quite a deliberate strategy from 2010 is to get more right-wing ethnic minority candidates into safe seats so they can do exactly the sort of thing that they are doing now yeah right? but no, the left is... we sort of allowed and wished for it to happen the person i actually remember seeing it was paloma faith and i just thought it was fucking like it got loads of art retweets and shares and I just thought it was the stupidest fucking thing I'd ever seen in my life. Yeah, 
But you I just want to use I'm, my I'm platform to. I'm going to push back very, very slightly here, just because I, I think it's, it's, it's very, it's always very tempting because it's often like bundles of ideas that are said by the same people. But people who push for a politics representation that is arguably liberal, and people who are genuinely on the left in terms of favouring economic redistribution, be that like at a state level, at an individual level, whether that's violent or democratic, like whatever it is, like it's, it's, it's very easy to lump these, uh, like lump liberal representation and redistributive politics together because they are both opposed by the right and so I'm just going to push it back a little bit on that because I think there is an important distinction to be made there. Uh, but yeah, yeah, but this is the two things, right? Three things, I'll get to that distinction in a second, but with Paloma Face, I just want to quickly say like, I saw okay. that, I thought it was fucking stupid, I felt like a lot of us sort of have allowed this and sort of fallen for a hook, line and sinker um, mm. I also feel like Thatcher's a good example as well, like Thatcher was yeah. the, the working class equivalent she was trying to get in with a party that would never accept her because of who she was, so she went and, and did like, you know it's a tale as old as time coming back these Greek fables. It's the Athenian who moved to Spartan was more Spartan than the Spartans. Like it's yeah. it's just there uh, and like I I didn't but I don't want to use my platform to slate Paloma Faith. I'm gonna beef with Paloma Faith. It's <laughs> a fucking stupid thing to put out in there in a public sphere because then when you got what you wish for. And originally before the pandemic, my show was called the Coley Bible, and it was all going to be about mm. how sort of like I prayed for the pandemic and then it happened and sort of like if you if you kind of wish on something, it'll kind of come true. Uh, just not in the way you're anticipating and sort of try to find all these, these different avenues uh, or these examples of that being uh, true. But nonetheless, uh, yeah, like, but I do feel like coming back to what you just said there, there is this real issue of crowding out on the left at the minute, whereby, and particularly because so many of our discussions get formed at universities and stuff, where now it costs nine grand to be. We've literally priced out working class people from university, or at least the Tories have. But we're mm-hmm. still charging in with a lot of these social debates and stuff like politics of representation and just getting like we're literally riding into a trap. The Mongols are there waiting in a horseshoe formation as we have dove down the hill into the fucking cave um, mm-hmm. and we've just been annihilated. And I do feel that is partially because a lot of economic. Yes, it's been ripped away by the right wing, but we've just sort of like the center left have jumped into it. And then the far left have found their voices. Because sometimes subconsciously, I don't think we realise we want to be heard more than anything. And it's a subconscious thing. It's just a human element. And so subconsciously, I think we've sort of like, some people further left, because they know that the economic debate is just so hard to have and won't be won. We allow ourselves to focus more on the social debate. And that in turn Mm. is a sort of like, it, it feeds itself um, and it becomes a vicious cycle where we just crowd out all economic discussion altogether. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there is some value in the idea that like politics is downstream from culture, and that by influencing the culture, you thereby uh, you know you you set the essential preconditions for you know a left wing perspective further down the line on economic and redistributive issues um but i mean like i don't know i suppose in my experience and then obviously this is entirely subjective because it's my experience though obviously it's my experience and therefore it's right um is uh, that in my experience that the people who are most hot on you know very finely grained issues of representation what is and is not problematic in terms of media consumption are mostly very young mostly very online they have limited uh experience of political struggles in real life and they see 
politics mostly through the lens of um, consumption. And that is a lot of how they interact with the world, in part because they are like disempowered in their workplaces. They are disempowered in their social environments, in the social institutions that they are part of. And so what they can control is what they buy, where they shop, what, what they choose to consume and the consequences of that for their own formation of identity. And so if they can take a thing from that, that is something that they're, they're, they're trying to get some agency back by rejecting those things. I, I, would, I, I, absolutely I absolutely agree with that there are huge limits to that. Yes, I would 100% agree with everything you're saying. I think what you just said uh, is a far more empathetic to the younger generation, or sympathetic, should I say. I think you've nailed it there. <laughs> but it's far more sympathetic to the younger generation where mine was just a rant, an old man ranting at a cloud. <laughs> I, I'm, look, I don't get me wrong. I what you're I'm... saying, and I think that's 100% right. <laughs> I guess it's sort of like... I don't know how do you bridge that divide because a lot of these kids are probably maybe still in their parents' house. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or they've, they've not really had to balance the books themselves or they're not even getting to these communities that might be in, in London or bigger cities per se. And they're not yeah. getting to these communities, these towns that have very much seen their, their best days gone by and not really humanizing yeah. these people in a way that they can find a way to understand them instead of alienating them further. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, like, I, I think it's um, one of the things that I think the on like the quote unquote online left has done reasonably well over the last few years is like reintroduce class politics to that. And like it, when you're taking that sort of thing offline, if you're of our generation, then I think it behooves us to make sure that we are making like active overtures to younger people in terms of when we're doing workplace organising, community organising, when we're in like our you know sort of social groups with things like XR that sort of stuff, and we're getting younger people on board. And similarly with the younger people that they um like are um aware of the sort of the the established infrastructure of the left in terms of things like trade unions and you know there there is value in an admin uh spreadsheet and that sort of stuff and that sort of level of community organizing that they can get on board that way and we meet somewhere in between like i i have I'm fortunate enough that I can develop some hope from having seen some examples of that happen in the real world and have younger people develop a, a more broad-based political consciousness as a result. Well, you should be hopeful uh, because I think you actually just made me sort of pause for thought there and think, uh, well, actually, how do I do that? How do I then? Because as I'm getting older, I'm sort of finding myself not really, but maybe I do need to make a bit more of an overture or reach out to those younger audience members as well because increasingly they are getting younger in clubs, but it's interesting because in clubs, you know, if it's twenty pound a ticket, they're actually more around my age. Yeah, they're 30, 31. and they, they used to be I was twenty one, twenty two, twenty three in the clubs, and that yeah. was an intimidating prospect. Whereas now, a lot of these people in the clubs are exactly my type of audience, and yeah. that is a whole other aspect. And that I find it so much easier. I find it just they're not they're not a bit older and they got a bit more money than me, but they're not like younger and completely far away. But I just remember doing a. A bit, I've got a bit about like meeting a Chinese scouser, um, and it's sort of a bit mm. all about the multiculturalism, the UK, and the accents and yeah, the yeah, ethnicities, yeah. and being confused by that as an Indian Geordie. Um, and I, I, the, the, the final punchline is, is oh, then we got stoned and pretended to be Harold and Kumar. <laughs> and again, genuinely true story. Uh, his name is Leo. I don't think he'll be watching, but when I met him, I was just like, oh, it's the first time I met a Chinese person with a. Liverpoolian accent. It was like it's the first time I met an Indian person with a Geordie accent. I was like, "Fucking yeah!" <laughs> then we got stoned and pretended to be Harold Kumar, genuinely true. Uh, but nonetheless, I did that at the fringe at my compilation show and just got nothing. And then I sort of looked out. Mm. My f- compilation show was—it's not there this year, but it was in the counting house. Um, yeah, in the main room in the pear tree. 
and that attracts a very young student audience. It's right mm-hmm. next to their, like, it's a 15 minute walk away from their, where they will live, Marchmont. So it's all like, I looked out and just realized it's 19, 20, 21 year olds. And like, never mind Harold and Kumar, they'd probably never seen a fucking DVD. Mm, like, yeah, yeah. they'd grown up with streaming services. That's what, yeah. how they socialized the world. So I looked at it, I was like, that's a good job. Oh, yes, I'm old now. How How terrible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My uh, my child, I had to explain to him what a phone box was for. Like, this is, like, time moves on. You help somebody who's getting a heart attack. There's the defibrillators there now, aren't there? <laughs> yeah. So, um, like, how does the version of yourself that you play on stage differ from how you are in real life? Like, what are the, what are the key points which make stage role different from real life role? I don't know. The person on stage, because I've changed as I've got older. I have mellowed. Um, and I think when I was younger, it was it was a very it was very, I think the personal stage was me at my best in Freshers Week, just yeah. a drunk who'd had all the confidence in the world, wasn't scared <laughs> of meeting these new people, was interested to learn about different people from different backgrounds, was excited just to be there, and had a hell of a lot of energy. As I've got older, it's still like me, I suppose, maybe at my best and well crafted it's the nature of stand-up if you see me on stage compared to podcasts it, it's just nature isn't it like if i've rehearsed something a thousand times know exactly how it's meant to be said to elicit a particular response that's always going to be smoother than when i'm just saying something for the first time um it's me on my best day but that used my best day used to be a lot more than it is now. I think that's that, That's the best way I can summarise it. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Okay, so I think we'll uh, end it there. It's a nice point to end. So, uh, Raul, if people want to catch up with your stuff, um, where should they go? At Raul Coley Comic on all socials, R-A-U-L-K-O-H-L-I-C-O-M-I-C. Um, you watch my special, My Heroes Are Dead in Jail, I've touched up your nan sort of all about cancel culture and a lot of the stuff we've talked about and sort of a revisionist perspective all right lovely all right um thanks so much for joining us all that was a lovely chat and a lovely set and uh thanks so much we'll see you again thanks for having me man it was wonderful very much appreciated (laughs) cheers take care was the quantum leopard podcast uh, if you want to catch a live show in london look us up at uh, linktree uh, forward slash quantum leopard to sign up to the mailing list uh, we will never take advertising because advertising is cultural poison but from each according to their ability to each according to their need so if you enjoyed our guests in your ears but would like them in your eyes as well uh, we have uh, videos of whole shows up on patreon.com forward slash quantum leopard we only charge when a new live show video comes out if you enjoyed the show why not give us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and or share this episode on the socials editing was by uh, Reese Lawton who is uh, conventionally attractive and fun at parties uh, music was composed and produced by Rooks Production Services at, at I Am Rooks on the socials that's Rooks with an E uh, the Quantum Leopard podcast is distributed and licensed under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives 4.0 international license which means you can share it as much as you like but don't uh, change it or sell it in any way because I will find out where you live uh, kind love and see you soon bye <laughs> let's see what I've got in the diary for 2024 Uh, Absolutely nothing.